Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Hello, my name is Lenny Goldberg, and I am filling in for Tamar Yona. I live in a settlement in Samaria called Kfar Tapuach, which is Tapuach Village. Tapuach in English means uh, apple, and I'm originally from uh, New York. You can tell from my accent. So that's the big apple. I've moved from the big apple to the holy apple here in Tapuach. I made Aliyah back in 1985. That's when I came to Israel. And I'm going to speak to today uh, about all kinds of subjects, Israeli politics, anti-Semitism. We're going to talk a lot about the Bible and how that relates to all that stuff. And um, let's start out with the uh, Knesset, which everybody's talking about. We had elections in Israel. There's a lot of optimism regarding these elections. And this is certainly the most right-wing government we've ever had, and hopes are high. And of course, I'm not here to be a a downer or damper the hopes, but we have to be realistic. We know that we've had right-wing governments before. As a matter of fact, it was the right-wing governments of the Likud who dismantled Yamit, who dismantled Gush Katif. So let's, let's give a bracha, a blessing, and hope that this time it's going to be different because there's no question that this is a golden opportunity and we have to go forward and take advantage of it because the very fact that this right-wing government has come to power doesn't solve a thing. Because in the last two decades, well, the state of Israel has been like a chariot of horses racing to the cliff. And the Likud governments have had plenty to do with that. Right-wing governments have had a lot to do with that. So we got to stop this decline because it's not enough to simply halt past policies. That is, it's not enough to just say, okay, we got to stop doing this and stop doing that. A new government is going to have to act boldly and steer that chariot 180, 180 degrees in a different direction. So what I mean, what do I mean act boldly? Well, the first issue, the first issue which has to grab the attention of this new administration is the Arab issue. Forget about the terror for a moment. Arab terror is a problem, big problem. But even through democracy, the Arabs, they were part of the last government. If they swarm to the polls, like they're capable of doing in the next elections, there won't be a right-wing government again, ever again. Just like the border in America with all these illegal aliens coming in, they're changing America. We got a problem like that in Israel as well. And so the new government has to deal with the Arab demographic time bomb because it endangers the very existence of Israel. And we can't keep relying on miracles and allow the fate of the Jewish people to hang in the balance out of fear of what the nations will say. Now, we have to understand that in Israel, the real struggle it's not right versus left. The real problem is America versus the Almighty. Who is the relevant force? Is, is Hashem the relevant force or is America the relevant force? Now, many good Jews voted for this government. They supported a right-wing government because there's still a normal and healthy part of the nation out there. And that's a good sign, good instinct. Uh, but this government owes them hope for a true and secure Jewish state because it's not secure and Jews don't feel safe and they voted this government in to feel safer. I know Haredi Jews who never voted anything 
but Shas and Aguda, the real, what we call the Haredi Jews, the pious Jews who only vote these black hat parties, they voted for Itamar Ben-Gvir because they feel that they are in danger walking the streets. So we owe it to these people, to the Jewish people, to act and, and make a true Jewish state. And it's not like we're in the opposition now. We have no excuses. So we have to act brave, brazenly and with courage. The question is, do our leaders possess these attributes? Or instead, will they try to find favor in the eyes of the world? And that is always the problem. What will the world say? So if this administration goes boldly along the straight and true path and devotes itself to making Israel no longer dependent on the Gentile or on the Arab vote, and they deal with the internal Arab enemy, then it will be firmly established. But if it goes down the same primrose path of fear, what will the nation say? What will America say? What will the world say? And they don't do the things that they have to do to do to survive, then this government will just, be, will just be swept away into oblivion because it didn't take advantage of this historic opportunity. That's um, the idea of believing in Hashem and not in the nations. This is like a basic tenet in the Bible. You know, I'm a, I give Bible classes. It's Lenny Goldberg Bible classes if you want to check it out. And if you read the Bible, most basic book out there, every, every religion started from the five books of Moses and the Bible. And the fact is the Jews wrote the Bible and the Gentiles read the Bible, but the Bible has all the secrets in it for us. This whole idea of not depending on the nations and not allying us and not allying ourselves and not worrying what the world says, this was the very, this is a common denominator in the Tanakh, in the Jewish Bible. Even King Solomon, as great as he was, he was punished for that very sin. He married the daughter of Paro because he wanted an alliance with the superpower of that day, Egypt. As a matter of fact, the, the, as a, the verse says, Vaitchaten in Paro, it says. And he married Paro. It doesn't say he married the daughter of Paro, but he became a son-in-law to Paro. So it was a political marriage for him because he was worried about the nations, what they're going to say, what they're going to do. And that's even, and that's Solomon with all his greatness. The fact is, even the great King Solomon, one of the greatest kings of all times, and we, and we wait for those days when we'll have a king like that, where all the nations will come to Jerusalem and hear the wisdom of a great king. But Solomon, he made the same mistake. He married the daughter of Paro. He wanted to be the son-in-law of Paro. It wasn't romance. These are political marriages. And he was punished for that. Solomon was punished because it showed a lack of faith in Hashem that he had to run and make an alliance with Egypt. And the fact is, for 36 years, he married the daughter of Paro. There was a split in the kingdom for 36 years, which continued more than 36 years, unfortunately. But that was all because of what? The need that you think you need the nations and you don't depend rock on Hashem. Rock on, because God is the one that we're supposed to depend on. And you show your faith precisely by this. It's very easy to get up and pray and say, thank you, God, thank you, God, thank you this, thank you for that. But it's your actions that really tell if you believe or not. That's the criteria. And when you suddenly run to the nations because you're worried what they're gonna say and you don't do what you have to do, then there's a flaw in your faith and you can pray as long as you want. And you could say in your praying, they have, they have chariots and horses, but we believe in God. 
But the next second, when you're speaking politics over a cup of coffee, you're worried about the chariots and the horses, then there's a problem with your faith. So even the great King Solomon sinned, and we had a split in the kingdom because of that. So again, the Bible gives us this wisdom. It's not, and it's not just Solomon. If you look at the great, the great King Chizkiyahu, Chizkiyahu was a brilliant king, one of the greatest. But again, he was afraid of Assyria, and he made an alliance, and it was, and and he was punished for that. And so we we have to glean the wisdom of the Bible because a common den, a common denominator within the entire Bible, starting with Joseph, the biblical Joseph, who trusted in the in the prisoners of the Egyptian prisoner, the Saramashkim, the one, the uh, butler. He said the butler's going to help me. He asked for help. He believed in Hashem. So for that, he sat another two years. So we see a prototype of this problem of leaning on the nations, not, believe, not believing enough in Hashem. And this is the source of all our problems. And so I'm going to today bring a lot of Bible and Chumash into what I want to say because it's very relevant for what's going on today. Let's go on to the next subject, subject that's bothering a lot of people, and that's Kanye West. And what, let's call it black anti-Semitism. You know, anti-Semitism comes in colors. And, you know, I really, I've been out of, the, out of the States for a long time. I don't know who this guy is. I hate rap music anyway. I never knew who he was. But just listening to him speak and listening to a man who can't construct two coherent sentences in a row, I'm just wondering, where is the brilliance in this man? How is he a billionaire? But that's not the point. The point is this, to me, the only thing I care about is how this fuels more anti-Semitism, especially black anti-Semitism. Because Jews already are getting pummeled in the streets. Already. It's been happening for a while now. Maybe it's not getting publicity. But Jews are getting beat up by blacks in Crown Heights and Williamsburg and other neighborhoods like that. So this just adds fuel to the fire. And it doesn't matter if this guy West is getting denounced or condemned. That doesn't give us nachas. That shouldn't give anybody any comfort that Twitter banned him. That doesn't matter. Because those who condemn his anti-Semitism, they're not, the, they're not the streets. It's the streets that matter. The good people who denounce him, they don't represent anybody. They represent themselves. What matters to me is the black man in the streets, the masses, and they still hate us. And if a black man condemns Kanye West, he's just another Uncle Tom. He's a sellout for the man, for those in the eyes of the average black. So it's the streets that count, and the streets have now gotten even more dangerous for the Jew who walks around in these neighborhoods. So, you know, this take on anti-Semitism again, it's been around forever. And who knows where it stems from? We know where it stems from. The very fact that the Jews are called a chosen people, you know, that could get people upset. But it's always been there. And again, we can glean from the, 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 the uh, Bible, especially from the five books of Moses, this week portion of the week, we run into another anti-Semite, but he's not a black anti-Semite. He's a white anti-Semite. His name is Levan. Levan happens to be white. So it doesn't matter if it's white or black. And this is exactly what happens to the Jew in the exile, what happens to Jacob when he's at Levan's house in the White House. So we're going to um, go back to this in our next segment where Jacob is going to go to Levan, and we're going to see the same phenomenon of the Jew getting comfortable in the exile 
And at the end, everything explodes. So we're going to look at that real soon. Israel News Talk Radio. On the of Torah, a question of priorities. That's what much of life boils down to. What should I spend my money on? What's worth waking up early for? Where should we live? What should I do in my free time? Which school should we send our children to? Our forefather Jacob models for us how to decide the answer to these questions in this week's Torah portion by Yishlach. Says the Torah, And Jacob traveled to Sukkot and built for himself a house. And for his cattle, he made booths. When it comes to matters concerning us, our true self, which is our soul, we give it proper respect. For godliness, we build a home. For Torah and its vote, we invest our time, efforts, and finances. When it comes to material matters, which are all those things we share in common with animals, such as eating, sleeping, playing, for those, we don't give the best of our energy and money. The equivalent of a simple basic shed is enough for those lesser important matters. We will invest in them only as much as necessary to be able to focus on the real reason why we were sent to this world. In short, we will give the maximum for our spiritual life and the minimum for our physical. With your eye on of Torah, this is Chava Zikavich. Shalom, this is Nadia Matar from the Sovereignty Movement. At a time when there is so much disinformation, you have to know who to listen to to know what really is going on in Israel. Israel News Talk Radio is a radio where you can know that what you hear is the truth. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. This is Nani Gogol continuing here from Partapoch, the Port Village in Samaria. And we were talking about black anti-Semitism, and now we're going to talk about white anti-Semitism in the house of Lavan. Lavan means white in Hebrew. And so the story goes like this, and this is the prototype story of the exile for the Jew. We usually think that Egypt was the first exile, but actually it starts right in our portion of the week in the five books of Moses in this portion where Jacob is forced to flee to the exile through no problem of his own, through no fault of his own. He has to leave. He's forced to leave. His brother wants to kill him. And so where does he go? He goes to this guy, Lavan, who is in a place called Lavan Padam. It's like an area around Syria. And he goes there with nothing. I mean, this is the classic Jewish story. He's penniless. He doesn't have a shekel to his name. And he starts working really hard. I mean, he works, he's got a work ethic and he saves one penny after another and another penny. He works for seven years for his first wife. He works another seven years. He's still pretty broke, but he's doing fine. You know why? Because he works hard. He succeeds. His boss loves him. He's making lots of money for his boss. He's incredibly honest. And so uh, he's he's a success story. But is he going to stay there forever? I mean, he's in the exile, right? Well, what happened? I'm going to read some of the verses here. His wife, Rachel, Rachel, she had had trouble with having children. His wife, Leah, had a lot of children. But Rachel, she was uh, barren. And then finally, she gave birth to Yosef, the famous Joseph. And it says like this. And Jacob said to Lavan, let me leave now. I want to go back to my land. So now that Joseph is born, Jacob says, I'm going back home. What's the connection between Joseph and going back home? Well, that's a deeper concept. They say that Joseph can deal with Esau because we know that Esau is an eminence to Yaakov and he wants Joseph to be born. That's a kind of a mystical concept. I'm here in Shem, in Nablus I live, right where Yosef's tomb is. 
the tomb of Joseph is right here. So we know a lot about these secrets of Joseph's powers. And Jacob, now that Joseph is born, after 14 years in the White House, he wants to go back. But what's, what's interesting, he doesn't go back. He said he's going back, but he doesn't go back. You know why? Well, then you see the next verses. He starts making a business. He starts to get really successful, and he stays on another six years. What a, what a thing he's done. He pulls off this incredible technological enterprise where he's able to grow his flocks to incredible numbers. Like he is, he's using secrets of Kabbalah to grow his flocks, and he becomes incredibly wealthy. And that's what the verse says. I'm going to read the verse here after he says that other six years, just like this. And the man, talking about Jacob, became very, very prosperous. And he attained flocks and maidservants and servants and camels and donkeys. In other words, he made it. He made the, he, he, the American dream. He made it. But what's the problem? He stayed too long. He was supposed to go home already. I know the money keeps you there. But listen to the next verse. And then the words, and then the next verse, the words of Levan's sons. Levan had sons, and they said, Jacob has taken all that belonged to our father. And that which belonged to our father, he amassed all his wealth. So what's going on? Jealousy. The Gentile in the exile is jealous that the Jew has made it and has succeeded. It doesn't matter that he was honest. The jealousy comes out the minute that Jacob became successful. And the same people who were very nice to him, as long as he was doing good for them, suddenly they turn on him. And that's the next verse. And Jacob noticed that Levant's face was not like it used to be. That is, it wasn't like it was the other day. That nice neighbor you had who smiled at you when everything was going okay. All of a sudden, that face changed. The disposition of that nice neighbor's face changed overnight. Suddenly the jealousy came out. It doesn't matter what it is. There's always going to be something. And so now we see that it's all falling apart. And, and then and the very next verse, And Hashem said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your native land, and I will be with you. And there you go. Hashem says, Jacob, you've been there a little too long. Return to the land of Israel. But isn't that the classic Jewish story? And he always stays a little bit too long. And so they got it. All the wisdom, it's right in our Chumash. And that's the importance of the Bible uh, and, the, and the five books of Moses, that they really are relevant for today, especially when you look at the book of Kings, the book of Samuel, the book of Judges, the book of Joshua. Now, when the Jews were in the exile for 2,000 years, the book, the Bible is so basic, and especially when the Jews were in the exile, we, you could understand why it wasn't being used, because all the all Jewish thought and was really just applied to the private sector. And the whole concept of a land of Israel, of an enemy, of a Jewish government, was irrelevant. You cannot, you're not going to have a king of Israel in exile. You don't have national enemies in the exile. But when we came to the land of Israel, not long ago, all of a sudden, these topics become very relevant. You do have enemies, and you do have governments, Jewish governments, like in the days of David and Solomon. So this is all kind of new for us. And so we haven't really adapted yet to Jewish world where we realize that the Bible is so fundamental and so relevant for today, but we're kind of stuck in an exilic kind of Judaism where we stress the small details of the aloha and the 
the, the oral law, which is obviously very, very important, but to get big picture Judaism, to get what we call hashkaf, to get an outlook, or what's the proper way to do things, you can't do that without the Bible. I'll just give you an example. How does a Jew fight a war? What are Jewish war ethics? You hear about it all the time. Oh, Jewish ethics, we throw leaflets on Gaza to warn the people if they're going to be bombs. All these things about Jewish ethics that we try not to hurt civilians. Jewish ethics? Well, Jewish ethics you get from the Bible. You open the book of Joshua. Every page talks about how they wiped everybody out. Everybody. Not one person was left. Page after page after page. Just the concept there. Reading that book, you can start to understand what Jewish ethics are. As King David says in the Psalms, he says, I'm not going to come back until I wipe them all out. That's what he says. Because if you don't finish it off, the most you can ever get, you can achieve only a ceasefire. The Jews in the Bible, like Joshua and David, they're not looking for a ceasefire. They don't want to have to go back to Gaza. So they finish off the job. And that's what the Bible is when you think about it. It's a bunch of wars. If it's the judges, if it's Joshua, it's kings, Samuel. We're talking about fighting wars. And you see the typical Jew, what he should be before the exile. What is the David, the Oavs, the, the Sauls? We're talking about scholars who went out to fight. We're talking about somebody like King David. that he had a slingshot in one hand and he had a, 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 a Psalms in the other hand. The scholar warrior. It was always that way. And again, you can't get that outlook without learning, without learning Bible. And so it's kind of amazing that the Bible is full of these Jewish heroes and these Jewish prophets, yet we see that Jews are abysmally ignorant in their own Bible. And so that's one of the major uh, changes, I think, that have to be done in learning. And I took it upon myself to start a Bible podcast. It's called Lenny Goldberg's Bible Lessons. I think it's that you can find it that way, Lenny Goldberg's Bible, uh, Bible classes. And there you'll get a nice comprehensive uh, look uh, from the book of uh, Kings and Samuel we're doing right now. And you'll see the beauty of the Bible. This, it's, there's no literature like that. You can't compare any other literature to the Bible literature because it's something from the prophets. It's something divine. Now, especially the Hebrew. Of course, if you don't know Hebrew, I try to translate it as much as I can and understand the complexity because Hebrew is such a holy language. And, you know, they say you can, trans, you can translate the holy language, but you can't translate the holiness of the language. And so the Bible is in the holy language. And so there's, so, there's many different meanings. And we try to bring that over in our class. And, you know, I, I told you I came to Israel in 1985. Um, and it's because I saw Rabbi Meir Kahana on my campus. I mean, I was a assimilated Jew. Going, uh, going to Manhattan every day, Lexington Avenue, working for J. Walter Thompson, a big ad, ad agency. And I um, wasn't thinking much about being anything but a rich guy who married somebody from Long Island and lived a life like everybody else lived. Until I saw Rabbi Meir Kahana come to my campus. And he kind of changed the way I thought. Um, the first thing he did, I would say Rabbi Kahana, how he got me, was that he was able to project his Jewish pride that I never had before. Just the way he dealt with the crowd and with the hecklers. It was kind of like when I saw Jackie Mason in a nightclub the other day, the day after, I reminded Rabbi Kahana, wow, is he able to handle those hecklers? But that was a big change for me because I never saw an Orthodox Jew before, never saw a rabbi before. 
And I said, wow, these rabbis could be pretty cool. They know what's going on. So that immediately changed my perception of Orthodox Judaism right there and then. And um, I'm just trying to think of what he said that night. You know, I think, I think in our next segment, I'm going to tell you some funny things, uh, the wisdom of Rabbi Kahana and how he got me to change my life. You think you can get real news about Israel from major news sources located far away from Israel? Think again. Get it from the source. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk. Major depressive disorder is a debilitating disease affecting millions of people around the world. Depression is often treated with medication, but finding the right drug and dosage can take time. Individual responses to drugs vary. And the majority of patients have to try different medications before finding the right drug for them. An Israeli company called Genetica Plus is working on what they say is a personalized medical testing tool to treat depression by helping physicians find the best drug therapy for their patients. The approach uses a blood test to help predict the best drug treatment for each patient. Available drugs are analyzed against biomarkers in the patient's blood, saving physicians time and improving patient outcomes. For more information on the high-tech world today, visit IsraelTechTalk.com. With your INTR Tech Minute, I'm Bob Aiello. So I was uh, reminiscing how I got to where I am today. And I got to trace it back to how Rabbi Kahana got me on my campus and how he influenced us. You know, he didn't come as a rabbi, really. He came and spoke to us basically logic because we didn't know Judaism. And if he spoke to us about the mitzvah to live in Israel, it wouldn't mean anything to us. But he spoke from logic how anti-Semitism can rear its ugly head, just like he did in Germany, and it's not safe here. But actually he got us with his humor, I'll tell you the truth. When he came to the campus, I remember that day, it was, every campus has a Hillel. They're like a Jewish organization. And they never like Rabbi Kahana. They're like afraid of him. I know they don't want to sponsor him. So he got, it, he got sponsored through another group. So the Hillel rabbi, the first thing he said to Rabbi Kahana was, you know, I don't like to see those bodyguards next to you. The rabbi came with these big bodyguards. He says, you know, um, I'm not comfortable with that. He kept saying, I'm not comfortable. This is a college campus. And uh, we, uh, we, we don't preach violence. And I kept saying, I'm not comfortable. So Rabbi Kahana said to him, well, first of all, this threat's on my life, so I'm comfortable. I'm comfortable. Anyway, we just cracked up from that, me and my friends. And, uh, you know, while he was speaking, some girl gets up and she says some verse from the Torah that contradicted what the rabbi said. I don't remember the verse. And the rabbi looked at her and said, you show me where, where that's written and I'll swim back to Israel. And I looked back at that girl and I saw the stupidest look on her face. Because I guess there was no such verse. But I figured the rabbi not, must know a lot of Torah because he knew that verse wasn't written and it could have been written. It sounded like something could be for the Torah. And just the rabbi just got us. I mean, his logic, his, uh, his sense of humor, the way he was able to deal uh, with college students. You know, one guy got up and said, what, do you want us to go back and start 
offering sacrifices and virgins on the altar? He said something like that, something real chutzpah. The rabbi looked at him with a face washed with pity and, and shook his head and said, you know, he said, he said to him, what do you know? What do you know about Judaism? I'm a, I'm a rabbi who's learned many, many years Torah. You don't know anything about Judaism. So why don't you just learn a little bit and don't you won't and then you won't make a fool out of yourself in front of all these people. Anyway, we just kind of cracked up on that. And really that was his basic message to us. You don't know anything about Judaism. Go and learn in yeshiva. Go to Israel. And that really was a big game changer because I thought the only thing I could do is be a yuppie, as they say, you know, I got to work at some company and I got to make money and take the train to, to the subway from Queens to Manhattan. Hey, there's something else I could do. That was a big thing for me. And he would say, go to yeshiva and learn there. And if you don't like it, you can leave. But if you like it, stay. And tell your parents you're going to stay. It might not make them happy, but it's not the first time you didn't make them happy. At least now it'll be for something good. And so, you know, I figured I had nothing to lose. And it really did make me change my life. But, you know, I didn't like run to Israel right away. I had to, I had to read more, had to get more. I'm not going to just change my life. You know, I had a pretty decent life. I used to listen on talk radio, you know. There was a talk radio show, and so you would answer questions. Those like Barry Gray shows, Long John Nebel, Barry Farber. You know, those are great shows. And people would call up, and he gave these unbelievable answers. I just remember one of them. This guy calls up to the rabbi and says, his son is on a hockey team. And in the hockey, it's a Jewish hockey team. And they yell anti-Semitic chants at the arena, and they curse out the Jews there. And what are we going to do? So the rabbi says to him, well, first of all, Check harder. Check harder, you get it? It's a hockey term. Well, you know, I was just lolling around there in, in New York, and I was saying, am I going to make Aliyah or not? And then I read something the rabbi wrote, and this changed me. He wrote like this. He said, I'm not, I think he was interviewed in a newspaper or something, and he said, I'm not disappointed with the people who agree with me, but I'm disappointed with the people who agree with me but are too mired in their apathy and inability to escape their tiny lives. And I looked at that and I said, oh, that's me. And I just realized that if I don't make the move, I'll never make the move. I'm single still. I don't have that great a job. I'm not rooted yet. This is the time to go. So I made, finally made the move in 1985. And my God, I came here as a single guy. Uh, today I have eight children, wonderful wife, a house. And so... You know, I, that one decision made it for me. And, you know, it's kind of funny because my friends were with me at the beginning. They were with me that first day. They also loved the rabbi, but they didn't make the move, you know, because at the end of the day, you can know the truth and you can hear the truth. But when you walk out that door, are you going to change your life before because of it? Or are you going to go back to your routine? See, that depends on the person. He can be touched and he can know something's right. But we have a tendency to just like, okay, just go on our merry way. But I didn't let it, I didn't want to forget it. So I kept going, I kept listening to the Rav. The funny thing is when I came to Israel, it was so different. In America, I saw the rabbi debate Alan Dershowitz. I saw him on Meet the Press. I saw him on talk shows, very intellectual. Come to Israel and all he did was give rallies in the streets, like rallies like he had a microphone, a totally different thing. The fact is, he did that because he was, actually, he was actually banned from Israeli media the whole time. He never got coverage. He never got on that talk show. He never got on that ProPolitica show. 
that they have in Israel were talking heads. He never got to say his piece. And so the Israel, Israel public never really saw that side of the rabbi. They saw one side, the side where he's in the streets yelling and rabble-rousing, which actually worked for him. Because when the Intifada exploded in 1987, a lot of people were taking that message and said, you know what, we need a change. Kind of like what happened in this election with Itamar Ben-Gvir, when suddenly we see a um, sudden groundswell of people who want a hard hand against the Arabs. So the fact is, in Israel, there was no, there was no real freedom of speech. You know, the rabbi never got, his, uh, got to say his thing. And to me, I'm sorry about that, because I always wanted to see, what, to see him do here what he did over there. What, what another side of the rabbi that I got to see, luckily for me, was that he was a great scholar. Everything he said was coming from Torah sources. Even though he said it to us in a logical way, that's because we didn't know Torah. But the minute I learned in his yeshiva, I saw that everything was from Torah sources. And that made it an emes. It was a truth. It wasn't just a political situation. I'll give you an example. The Arab issue, which he's known for. That kind of stands for the rabbi. Rabbi Kahan is known for his stance on the Arab issue. But it wasn't just a political thing. It wasn't just a matter of, it wasn't just a matter of that they're killing us. And if we don't throw them out, they're going to be a fifth column. It wasn't even that. The fact is, it was a Torah issue. It's a Torah issue because halacha, Jewish law, relates to Arabs and hostile Gentiles, just like it relates to Shabbos, to the Sabbath, and to kosher food. The Torah has what to say about Arabs who throw rocks at you. That's a halachic issue too. That's Jewish law. And the rabbi was able to take all aspects of Torah and put them on the table. He didn't limit the Torah to the private sector, but he put it out there and his Torah entered all areas national areas as well, and that made him different than all the other religious parties who were out there. But the fact is, the Arab issue was much more than that. It was much more than just a political problem or even a halachic problem. It wasn't even just a matter of Jewish law. But for the rabbi, it was the criteria if we're going to bring the redemption. The blessed redemption will only come if we do, if we do those difficult tasks that prove that we believe in the Almighty. And those national questions about surrendering land, about dealing with the Arab enemy, those are the types of issues that prove that the Jew believes or he doesn't believe. Because why don't we do it? Why don't we do what we have to? Why don't the Jews do what they have to do? They're afraid of the nations. Ah, you're afraid of the nations. Then that means you don't believe in God. You see how those issues really scratch the surface and they determine if, it, if it's a believing Jew or not, or if it's just rhetoric. Or when we pray, it's just robotic and Mir wrote. And so that's why he stressed those issues, those issues that really separate the men from the boys when it comes to faith. What happened to Rabbi Kahan in the end? Well, in 1988, he was going to get a whole bunch of seats because in 1987, like I said, they had the Antifada and he was getting very, very popular. Even though they didn't know who he was, the Israeli public didn't know him the way I did. They knew him from rallies. They knew him from the media. But one message came out. Boy, this, he's going to take care of those Arabs. And that's what the people wanted. Because in 1987, the Antifa scared the heck out of us. There's Arab terror. And there's no solution in sight. So they're all going for Rabbi Kahana. And so the Likud and the labor together came together with, this, with the, uh, the Supreme Court. And they banned his party from running in the Knesset for the Knesset. And that was it. After he was banned from the Knesset, basically... There was nothing he could do politically. And in 1990, the rabbi was giving a speech 
a classic speech about Aliyah, how the Jews have to return home. It was called the emergency Aliyah meeting, emergency escape from the exile before tragedy strikes. The rabbi was gunned down by today what we know to be an Al-Qaeda operative, El Said Nasser, of cursed memory. But the rabbi lives on. And, um, you know, we had a, just a little while ago was his memorial. He was killed on November 5th. And to this day, so many people flock to his gravesite because the truth is clear for us. I see my time is up. Well, that's it for me. This is Lenny Goldberg filling in for Tamar Yona. Thanks for listening. Any questions or comments, please send them to info at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. You've come to the best station for hot news and sizzling commentary. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. Where can you get the inside news on Israel? At Israel News Talk Radio, we're dedicated to sharing Israel's inside story with the world by providing our listeners with news on Israeli politics, current affairs, and Israeli Jewish culture. The Israel News Talk Radio homepage also provides you, the listener, with useful information at your fingertips. With scrolling news headlines, weather, currency exchange, Shabbat candle lighting times, and so much more. Our radio programming is always accessible and on demand. We operate absolutely free of charge for everyone, everywhere. If you love what we do, partner with us now by becoming an Israel News Talk Radio supporter. With your support, you'll be inscribed on our Israel News Talk Radio Wall of Fame. There's nothing like us in the world. Be part of something great. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. Howdy, this is Rita from League City, Texas, now living in Israel. And though my heart may have belonged to Texas, it now belongs to Israel and all the fantastic show hosts at Israel News Talk Radio. Hi, this is Michael Solomon from Kiryat Arba, Israel. And why do I love listening to Israel News Talk Radio? Because I love listening to the interesting interviews they do and their news reporting that most other media sources don't cover. Hey, this is Nicole Eko from Malmo, Sweden. It gets pretty cold here in Sweden, so I love cuddling up with a warm cup of tea while I listen to Israel News Talk Radio. Hey, everybody, this is Frank Norris from Tennessee. Me and my dog Buster really love listening to Israel News Talk Radio. <laughs> You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. 